Well, we're back in Romans, and Romans 8 is sometimes described like as the pinnacle of the book of Romans. There is so much happening. We said that this book gives the most decisive response or answer to the human condition. What is going on in the human heart? And Romans explores that, but it not only probes it deeper than anyone anywhere else in the world, but it gives us the solution. And so we just love digging deeper, and Romans 8 uh, does just that. But I want to lay out a question this week again. You probably saw it in the news as I did. Is another prominent Christian leader fell? There was another moral failure that is just a blotch on the church. And so when we come and we start thinking about the Christian life and walking with Jesus Christ, you have a question that just lurks in the heart. How is it that God intended us to live the Christian life today? How does he want us to walk in light of all the moral failures that we have seen in the Christian world. So if you have your Bible this morning, we're going to answer that question. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We're going to uh, begin and just go through uh, verses 1 to 17. We'll start with the beginning. But if you're able to stand, could I invite you to stand? If you're newer at Fox Valley Church, let me tell you why we stand. It's one way that we can honor the Word of God. We recognize that there are a lot of voices, a lot of words, a lot of things being said. But there is nothing in the whole world like the Word of God, like the Bible. And it's just a way for us to honor it. So if you have your device, you have the Word of God, Romans 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, Fox Valley Church, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of God, or the Spirit of Christ, does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Father, your word just cuts through the crazy of this world. 
It speaks into our human condition, gives us hope, and gives us a perspective on what's going on in our lives and how we as Christians feel the tensions and stresses of the spiritual life. And so now, God, we ask in Jesus' name that you would speak into our lives, that you would make us stronger by your power, by your grace, that we would be an incense, as Grace said earlier, that we would be a grace, that we would see the gifts flowing because of who you are and what you're doing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may grab a seat as we dive in. Obviously, it begins with a point I want to make clear and straight up is that there is no condemnation for those in Christ. There is no condemnation. That's the first thing I want to drive home because as we think about this, it makes us think about the end of Romans chapter 7. At the end of Romans chapter 7, remember the Apostle Paul was asking, why do I do the very things I don't want to do? Why is it I find myself saying, thinking, and doing the very things I don't want to do? And then he asks the question, who's going to set me free? And he just lays it out. He said, it's Jesus Christ. And there we get the phrase, Jesus Christ, the person, Jesus Christ. And this is the answer to the mystery of all the problems in the world that we see coming through the human heart. Jesus Christ, the God-man. Jesus Christ, the one who was promised in the Old Testament. Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man. The one Jesus Christ, who as I like to say, he's as much man as if he was never God, and he's as much God as if he was never man. He is truly the God-man. He's a mystery. How could you explain there being two people, one person? Two people, right? Or, or two souls like that. Or not two souls. Two, two people when we say flesh and spirit, right? Jesus Christ in the flesh and Jesus Christ as God. I mean, this is amazing as we think about it. And this was the mystery nobody could imagine. As they read the Old Testament, they couldn't imagine how was God going to solve the greatest problem in the history of the world. And that is that the wrath of God is being poured out on sin. How do you solve that? How do you resolve that issue that all of us are destined for hell because of sin? And what God does is he says, I've got the solution. I'm going to send the God-man who dies on the cross, pays a penalty of our sin so that we can live forever with, with him. And so Jesus Christ is now the one. But let's look at verse 1 a little more carefully. There is therefore for now no condemnation. Now, in the Greek, it reads a little differently because remember, coming out of chapter 7, the Apostle Paul is asking the question, who can deliver me? He says, Jesus Christ. And then he says, there is no. But the no in Greek is the very first word in the sentence. It's like no with an exclamation point. It's no in emphatic position to say to you and me that there is no condemnation. No condemnation. Where we once stood condemned under our sin, where we once were stuck with no solution, Jesus Christ stands in our place. He takes the wrath of God upon him, which was for us. He stood condemned so that we could live in freedom. 
that is the great substitution that takes place. And so Paul just wants to begin this whole section making it abundantly clear that we are in a new position with God because of Jesus Christ. There is now, now today, right now. So if you walk out of here and you start feeling like, man, I am a mess, I am a wreck, what God is saying to you is, no, you're not. There is now no condemnation for those in Jesus Christ. For those of us that are prone to carry guilt and shame, what God wants you to know is, no, wait a minute, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Right now, today, it's an active way to live is that we are no longer condemned due to our sin. So it's strong in its placement at the beginning here. But then he begins to move us into the liberation that takes place because of Jesus Christ. And that is that the Spirit brings life and freedom. The Spirit, the life-giving Spirit brings life and freedom. I mean, this is almost incomprehensible. The life of God enters the soul of a woman. The life of God enters the soul of a man. And when that happens, it says that there is life and freedom. So until the very life of God comes into your soul, there's death. But when that spirit enters, there's now supernatural life, spiritual life. You are now alive towards God and dead to the power of sin. That's what freedom is all about, is that we are now no longer under the control or power of sin. As Paul laid out in Romans chapter 7, he kind of takes sin as a person, as like a boss, as a master. And he says, now in verse 20, he says, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it's the sin that dwells in me. Now, he's not trying to get rid of human responsibility. We're always responsible for our choices, for our sin. But what he's trying to say here is that there is a power a law, he calls it, a law of sin, there's a principle at work in our lives that is working against the very work of God. And so the Spirit is now where we begin to see the tension in the Christian life. We begin to see what is happening. So let me just go a little deeper. Verse 2, the life-giving Spirit sets us free from sin and death. That's what it says in verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life, that's where I'm getting the phrase spirit life or life-giving spirit has set you and me free in Christ Jesus. Set us free, it says, from sin and death. Doesn't always feel that way, does it? But it's a truth. It's a truth that the power of sin that operates in our life has been wiped out. Not that it's gone, but it no longer has the control. Or if you think of it as a person, it's no longer your boss. It's no longer your master. You no longer have to submit to sin. And Paul is taking us into a place where Christians have a supernatural work going on in their hearts that change them from the inside out. That's why sometimes I'll say Christianity or at Fox Valley Church, we are not 
about a moral improvement program. What I mean by that is not that we don't want to morally improve, we certainly do, but we don't want it done by the flesh. We don't want it done in our efforts. What we want to do is allow the Spirit to transform us, to experience the power of the Spirit over and over again. Well, let's go a little further into verses 5 to 8. The life-giving Spirit stands against the flesh. For those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. There's two ways you and I are going to live. You are either going to live setting your mind on the flesh or you're going to live with your mind set on the Spirit. Only two ways you're going to go. Paul just cuts the Gordian knot, makes it really clear that if we would not yield to the flesh but yield to the Spirit, we will begin to see the life and freedom, the power that God wants for us. So, as I tried to put this together for us today, I want to give you just a very simple chart. On the left side will be the flesh. The flesh is the mindset on the flesh. And the flesh is simply, as we said a couple weeks ago, is the hostility against God. It's the rebellion against God that's in our soul. And so there's this transitory, weak nature of flesh. And so when we live in that state, Going back to the chart, right? The flesh is going to operate against the spirit. The flesh brings death. When we say the flesh brings death, what we're talking about is it brings alienation from God. Where you once were close to God, where you were once, the the flesh is the one that brings the death or the separation from God. Brings us into a hostility to God. Verse 7. So people that operate in the flesh, and Christians can do this. Christians can yield to the flesh, then they start becoming hostile to God, and they resist God's law. That's what it says in verse 7. It says they will not submit to God's law. And that is the danger of yielding to the flesh. Remember, the law is good. So if we come out with a basic example, it would be something like this, right? I've used this, seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, right? So what is happening? That's a good law to protect marriages, to protect life, to protect sexuality. And so what God's Spirit is doing is helping us fulfill that so that we will not resist, but will want to submit to God's law. Now, in contrast to the flesh is the spirit, and the spirit is moving in a slightly different direction, right? So on the right side of the column, we see that the spirit who is in us, it's a mindset that we get. It's our mind focused on the work of the spirit, and it brings life and peace. In other words, we begin to experience the very life of God because the life of God is in the soul of a human being, which is an amazing thought that has trusted Jesus Christ, and there is the life in God that is now part of us that we get to experience. We are in Christ. Christ is in us. And that is this life that the Spirit produces and it leads to holiness. It leads to a moral 
stature that is making us become more and more like Jesus Christ. So when we read verse 4, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled, what he's talking about is that we will, by the power of the Spirit, begin to be more conformed to the image of Christ, fulfilling the law. Remember in uh, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus Christ said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. So the law gets fulfilled as we yield to the Spirit. And so that becomes the way Christians ought to live. But we live in this tension of flesh and spirit. And so what Paul is moving us to is that we need to be yielding. We need to be constantly trusting in the power of the Spirit. Well, how do we do that? Well, let's push a little further into verses 12 to 17. Let me read a little bit more. It says, So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. That means you'll be further separated from God. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That sentence is key. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh. Verse 14, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So the Spirit bears witness that we are God's children. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit and says, you are truly a child of God. And that becomes very, very significant for us, right? As we live, as we walk through the Christian life, we need to know that we know that we are God's children. And look what he says. He calls us sons and daughters. So when he uses the word sons, he's a course, including women. So he's talking about sons and daughters. And when he uses that phrase sons, he's talking about not only are you part of the family of God in a very unique way, but you are also in that culture. Sons would often take on the trades of the dad. In other words, the characteristics of the dad. So when you are a son or a daughter, not only are you brought into the family, but you are beginning to take on the very characteristics of the father. And so what God is doing is reminding us that we are in a unique, special relationship with God. Now, I want to say it that way because certainly there's scripture that talks about people being sons that are far from God. What he's talking about there is that because we are made in the image of God, all people are truly God's children. But when you trust Christ, when you see yourself alienated from God and you need a Savior and you say, Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross, come into my life, now you are entering into a very unique relationship with God and that's what Paul is talking about here that he's talking that you are sons and daughters then look what he says he says that you are adopted 
as his children. I mean, this is an amazing thing to recognize that legally we are adopted into the family of God. Now, of course, Jesus Christ is the uh, main example here. When you think about this, is that Joseph adopted uh, Jesus. And so what we begin to see is the adoptive father. Nobody could have imagined how God was going to bring all his plan together. And so through Joseph, he adopts Jesus into the family. And then what we get is an adoption. And then he says that we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. That as Jesus is an heir, so are we. In Hebrews, it says that as Jesus is our brother. I mean, what a profound thought that trips us right into the next one, and that is that there is an intimacy that we can call him Abba Father. How much more intimate can you get as a person, as a believer, to say that you are my daddy, that you are my father, because the Spirit of God dwells within us. Now, as we try to bring this together, I I tried to give you a picture a couple weeks ago, and I want to bring that picture back. Remember the picture of a non-Christian. I think that this kind of captures what a non-Christian looks like. This is an aerial view. Imagine a drone going over your life, and the drone is taking a picture, a snapshot of your life before you were a Christ follower. And the picture is that of a jungle. You got trees growing up. You got vines growing across trees. You got weeds in the underbrush. It's a mess. Your affections are all disoriented. All your plans and purposes are just all over the place. Whatever whim is in the world, and that is a jungle of a life. And what I said is as you become a Christian and this drone is taking a picture, there's something that happens, and there's like what I'm going to call a little reprieve in the middle of the jungle a garden if you will a garden where God begins to take hold and he rips out some of the big trees maybe it's a tree of addiction maybe it's it's a tree of anger maybe it's a tree of of incredible meanness or selfishness and God begins to pull that out and he starts to bring in color and he starts to bring in life This is a picture of the Christian life. And what happens is that if we do not resist the encroaching jungle, and you all know what this means, right? You plant a garden in spring. You get all the weeds out. You get the flowers planted. The vegetable plants are all in. But if you leave that garden untended, unattended, what happens? The weeds start coming in and things take over. That's what I'm saying is going to happen in the Christian life, is there's this encroaching darkness, there's this flesh, this move of this sin that's personified that presses in against us. Now, I know as you're looking at that picture, you're asking this question. I can just see it on your face. You're asking this question. You're asking, why didn't God make my garden bigger? In other words, why is it that I have so many battles to fight today. If that garden was bigger and was more massive and more controlling, I wouldn't have as many spiritual battles. I don't know all the reasons why God doesn't just simply make us all a beautiful garden today. 
But I think part of it is that he wants you and me to live a life of faith. If we would trust him for his power to resist the encroaching darkness, the garden grows. It's an amazing miracle I don't understand. It's not by our power, it's by the power of God, but by faith drawing upon him, we begin to see the garden grows. And you know what's going to happen eventually. Let me show you a picture. Remember I told you I had a picture I wanted to show you. This is what it's going to ultimately look like. Remember the drone is flying over your life. Notice that there's no more jungle. When Jesus returns or you go home, your life will be made right. And there will be order, there will be beauty, there will be color. It will be the perfect garden. Now, why am I using the garden metaphor? Well, because if you read the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21, we get the new heavens and the new earth. And in chapter 22, we get a description of the garden. When was the last time you read about a garden? Back in Genesis chapter 2. And what happened in Genesis 3? There was a rebellion against God and darkness came and the jungle started to grow. And now what God is going to do is bring back the perfect garden. Remember the Garden of Eden is the Garden of Delight. So the Bible begins with a garden and it's going to end with a garden and your life is going to be part of that garden. It's going to be beautiful. And so what God is calling you and me to do is let's tend to the garden today. Now, I intentionally skipped over verses 12 to 13. So let's go back into chapter uh, 7, I mean chapter 8, chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. And let's look at that again. So, brothers and sisters, we are debtors. We are under obligation, not to the flesh. In other words, if you're not going to tend to your garden... The flesh is going to start having a power over you. The sin, the principle that's there, begins to work against it to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Your jungle will become a jungle again. But look what he says. If by the Spirit, not by your power, not by your ability not by the latest scientific treatment, not by the latest drug program, not by the latest whatever, but by the Spirit. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You will live. So the question is, how do you and I put to death the deeds of the flesh. How is it that you and I today tend to our garden? Or, to put it in the form of the picture I started with, that popular Christian man that fell from grace, what did he fail to do? He did not put to death the deeds of of the flesh. Now, the deeds of the flesh, this is the sin that's operating, this jungle that seeks to encroach upon us. 
It operates against God. It betrays God. It's like a Trojan horse in our hearts. We need to know that it's there. That's what Paul's writing about. There's a Trojan horse in your soul that wants to wage war against God's spirit. That's how Paul phrases it over and over, spirit and flesh, spirit and flesh. Too many of us are pampering the flesh. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, I buffet my body and make it my slave. He didn't say, I buffet my body. We got to quit pampering our flesh. The flesh chokes out the Spirit of God. So, let me give you six things I wrote down. I took these mostly from my own personal life. How do I put to death the deeds of the flesh? Here's the first thing I wrote down. I need to know that I know that sin has no power over me. I have to preach that to myself that sin no longer is a master over me. That sin is no longer my boss. You've got to start with a fundamental, foundational truth that sin is not your boss. Jesus Christ is. You do not have to say yes to the boss of sin. Second, we need to Quit throwing fuel on the fire. Fuel, the fire of sin. If you keep throwing fuel on there, guess what? It keeps burning bigger and bigger. Now, what do I mean by fuel and fire? I think I'm mostly talking about temptations. You have to get rid of the temptations that are in your life that are drawing you away from God. Sometimes it's a person. There's a person in your life that really doesn't appraise things spiritually and they keep saying things to you. Oh, let's go do this. I have a friend who had a friend. I had a friend who was a believer. We were in seminary together and he had a friend that kept saying, hey, come on over to my house. And they'd start drinking. Then they'd start doing drugs together. And pretty soon they were in a constant state of being high. So what happens, right? you got to be careful of who you make friends with. we got to be willing to say, whoa, be careful there, right? Temptations. Kathy, my lovely bride, uh, decided at Easter time for our grandchildren she was going to put out a candy jar on the counter filled with jelly beans. I love jelly beans. They tempt me all the time. I have no willpower over jelly beans i got to get rid of the jelly beans. Like, they don't need to be out there when the kids aren't around. So let's put them away, right? I mean, this is like lesson 101 when it comes to weight loss. They tell you what? Clean out all the garbage of the house. Get rid of the chips. Get rid of the cookies and the candy. And what do you put in front of you? Fruit and vegetables. Keep it all in front of you. Well, that's what we're talking about here, is you have to get rid of the temptations in your life. And we have to be serious about it. And a lot of Christians aren't serious. So what happens? Their jungle starts to grow against them. Here's the third. 
this comes out of Romans 6. You've got to keep presenting yourself to God. You've got to keep coming back. Romans chapter 6, verse 12, I wrote down, looking at this, is presenting yourself to God. You're saying, God, I want to walk in a pleasing way to you. Keep presenting. That's a life of faith. Keep saying, I want to live this kind of life. I don't want to live this other life. With presenting yourself to God, we need to develop mental habits. Remember, it's kept saying, set your mind on things above. Set your mind on the things of the Spirit. You and I have got to develop mental habits. So let me just give you one that I think I want to see the entire church in, and that is the reading, the Bible reading program. We read a chapter a day. What are you doing by doing that? You're getting your mind into the Word of God with a bunch of people every day. You can do that through our app. Just sign up through the app. We're starting a new thing uh, in like uh, five days or something like that on April 1st or 2nd, and you can get in, but it's a way of getting you into the Word. We need these mental habits. Number four, fight with spiritual weaponry. God has given us the weapon of the Word and the weapon of prayer. It's by the Word. The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's going to pierce all the way down to the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, why do I say that? Because a lot of us don't even know what a weed is and a flower. Have you ever done any gardening? Have you ever done anything? You go in there and you say, is this a weed or is this a flower? Do I keep this plant or do I pluck it out? Well, you know how you know? It's by the Word of God. And this gets deeply personal because some of us have attitudes and thoughts that are not of God. And God's Spirit will show you at the right time. Now, God is not asking you and me to clear the whole jungle at once. That would overwhelm us. What he's asking us to do in Romans 8, 12 and 13 <clears throat> is to keep working on these different things by faith. And then, of course, prayer. Constantly praying and being vigilant with prayer. Number five I wrote down, admit failure. If you don't admit failure, pride is one of the plants that gets a deep root. By constantly coming before the Lord and recognizing where I have failed, where I have fallen short, and just calling it out. The Bible says, just call it out. Just confess it. We'll begin to see more victory. Because now you're calling out the very thing that is tripping you up. I think too often, by not confessing, we're not identifying. Now, you can't just say, hey, I've got this sin and make it a big, broad, general sin. The more specific you are, the more success and victory you will see in keeping the garden clean. <clears throat> and here's the last one I wrote down. You need other believers. You need other believers. You and I cannot do this alone. Now I want to take you where I've been wrestling with the last uh, couple years. When I became a believer, people came to church typically several times a week. They were around other believers several times. 
We would come in the middle of the week on a Wednesday night. We would come on Sunday night. We came Sunday morning. We were in Sunday school. And then our culture started to shift. And when I say our culture, our Christian culture, and all of a sudden, people start pulling away. Oh, we don't need to go on Wednesday night. Soccer's more important, or the theater's more important. Now, I'm not saying that any of these things are wrong or bad. What I'm saying is we stopped being around each other. Then we said, well, wait a minute. I had church on Sunday morning. I don't need to be there on Sunday night. So we pulled that away. And then we created this nice thing called small groups. But because small groups were developed when we were meeting on Wednesday night and Sunday night, small groups were like an addition, and so they usually met every other week. What I want to say is that's a bad idea. We need believers around us every week where we can be with them. So at Fox Valley Church, we're trying to move our small group ministry into a place where you meet weekly. Say, oh, I don't have time for that. Well, your garden's going to get filled with weeds and jungle. The other piece that we're adding is we're trying to have what we call transformation groups. They're part of our life groups where we're asking questions about each other's lives. What's going on in your life? What sin is tripping you up? If you can't share that with another man or another woman, you probably are having a jungle growing into your garden. And so at Fox Valley Church, we recognize we don't live in the 1960s anymore. This is the 21st century. And we can't roll like we did 50 years ago in small groups. But you and I know that we need people around us. Added to what I'm saying, people now attend church about one out of four Sundays. Again, we're not around God's people. You and I have got to make commitments to say, I need God's people to help me grow. But it doesn't just rub off. You need to be with them in conversation. So let me encourage you to take serious this area of tending to the garden that God has planted. Or let me put it in theological terms. The Holy Spirit is living inside your soul. We need to tend to the Holy Spirit to let Him, it's not an it, to let Him work in our hearts to transform us into the image of Christ. Father, thanks for the truth of Your Word, the power of Your Word. Thank You that You love us. You love us so much that You don't just let us run off, that You constantly pull us in. Thank you that you made us your child. Thank you that you adopted us. Thank you that you made us join heirs with Jesus Christ. Thank you that there is this great reward coming one day when we'll be fully removed from the power of sin. And then God, thank you that we are who you say we are. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we close?